When you're alive, life can be fun. Go to the forest where the shadows do run. They're coming soon. They can hear you. Y'all just heard the most amazing intro by Mama. Yes. They did such an amazing job. So fucking creepy. And then we come in with the, hey, y'all, and like totally ruin the mood. (laughs) But. Yeah. Here we are. (laughs) And so we are kicking off 31 Nights of Halloween. You've already gotten a little bit of stuff happening this month, but this is our first extra episode release on the main page yep patreon has already gotten some extra content but this is our big debut mm-hmm. it's about to be creepy like that was <laughs> well speaking of creepy what we're going to do this episode is donna and i have both chosen two stories from creepy pasta that are well fucking creepy exactly and we are going to read it back to you because they're fucking creepy. Uh-huh. So kind of like a Sinister Sightings with a twist. Yes. Shaken, not stirred. Ooh. I like mine a little dirty. Actually, extra dirty. In more ways than one. Mm-hmm. A little double entendre for you? Mm-hmm. Okay. This one is called Mommy Dearest, written by Ian O'Grady. As Julie began to regain consciousness, she knew something wasn't right. She started to panic as she realized that she was strapped to a table. (gasps) A big, bright light beamed down onto her face, blinding her, as silhouettes moved silently around her. The silhouettes began to whisper, She's perfect, Daddy. Thank you. Julie tried to scream, but the gag in her mouth muffled her cries. Julie heard a little girl giggle as something began to brush her hair. She then heard another giggle in the corner in front of her. Only two hours before, Julie was responding to an ad on Craigslist, looking for a live-in nanny. And the last thing that she remembered was ringing the doorbell. As the whispers continued, the light switched off, leaving Julie with blind spots that covered the face of what appeared to be a man peering down at her. As the blind spots began to disappear and her eyes readjusted, she was greeted by a frail old man with a toothless grin. And behind him sat two dolls. They were life-size dolls and beautifully dressed. I want to introduce you to my little girls. On the right is Masha and on the left is Dasha, said the man. Hi, Julie, giggled the two dolls. She couldn't help but notice that even though the sound appeared to come from the dolls, they didn't move. My girls need a mommy, said the old man as he moved over behind the dolls, rubbing their hair as he stared at Julie. 
The old man moved clumsily over to the table Julie was strapped to and removed the gag from her mouth. Please don't scream. It'll scare the girls, he said. Julie knew if there was a chance someone could hear her, she had to take it. Julie began screaming at the top of her lungs. Make her stop, Daddy, sounded a voice coming from the doll's vicinity. As Julie screamed for her life, the old man began raining blows down upon her head. For a frail old man, he's really strong, she thought, as the blows kept coming. Yeah, I'm sure that's exactly what mm-hmm. he's think- she's thinking. Mm-hmm. He only stopped once Julie began to lose consciousness. As she faded in and out, her captor left the room, leaving her alone with the two dolls sitting across from her. As Julie laid there, she imagined how she might escape the clutches of the crazy old man and his creepy dolls. As she frantically tried to free herself from the straps, she suddenly heard a noise behind her. Julie's eyes darted to the chair where the dolls were sitting. They were gone. Then she heard the pitter-patter of tiny footsteps just behind her. You're a bad mommy giggled a voice from behind. Julie was stunned by fear. For a moment, she felt the porcelain hand of one of the dolls stroking her face. The feeling was soon replaced by that of a cold, hard, steel blade slipping in just beneath her chin. Night-night, Mommy. Sleep tight. This one is titled, I Found a Letter from My Stalker. And it is written by Minister of Owls. I found this note nailed onto a tree of my front yard. I really don't know how to describe it. I'll just let you read it for yourself. Note start. I saw you today. It was your birthday. You didn't see me. You hardly ever do these days. Your skin looks so nice and healthy. And your eyes, they were the most beautiful I'd ever seen them. You've grown so much. I remember how different you used to look when you were younger. I remember the first day I met you. It was four years ago. I was sitting at my desk, head down, listening to the teacher rattle off names for attendance. The teacher called out a name I didn't recognize, and a stranger's voice answered behind me. Was there a new student? The teacher didn't pause for a second, just continued calling out name after name. I turned my head to where the voice had come from. I saw you, a pale thing, so thin your eyes so red, at a seat that should have been empty. I saw the fireflies flying around you, flickering, dozens of them, never straying far from you. I saw them going through you and coming out through your skin, like you were a mist to them. Can you believe I thought you were a ghost? No one seemed to acknowledge the new stranger sitting at the back of the class. Class after class, Hour after hour passed as I waited for something to happen, for someone to notice you, for you to leave, for you to let out a ghoulish scream and claw at me like the horror story I was certain I was in. But nothing happened. Teachers came and went. My classmates laughed and slept, and you just sat there. The bell rang for recess. The other kids ran to their mundanities for the day, leaving me and you together in the empty classroom. You stood up and pulled a chair from the desk next to you, making it face your desk. You turned your head to me and spoke. Well, you're slow today. Come on, ask me a question. 
I don't know why I didn't run away screaming at that moment. Probably would have turned out better for me in the long run, but let's not speculate. I guess at that point in my life, I was pretty bloody lonely. I figured there was only a 50-50 chance you'd eat me, and the other 50 was that someone wanted to talk with me. Kid priorities don't make sense to me either these days. So I went along with the flow. I walked over to your desk, sat down on the chair you pulled out for me, and asked my question. What were you? You told me you didn't know. You said that once you were a child, just like me, with parents and friends, you used to go to the same school as me. Then... One day, one ordinary day, when you were 10, you just woke up and you were like this, covered in fireflies, and no one could remember you the moment they concentrated on anything else. No one, not even your parents. You told me of how I'd notice you every day, how I'd think of you until recess every day, how I'd come to you every day, how we would talk every day, how we would meet for the first time every day for the last three years about how I'd forget the instant I walked out of the room, how everyone would forget you, how the fireflies would make them, how for the last three years you'd been alone. Your story was hard to believe, so I didn't. I asked what reality prank show I was on. You looked, well, unimpressed and asked me to continue telling my story. I was caught off guard by the non sequitur. You said last time I was here, I was telling you a story, a horror story about a haunted house. As you detailed the story, goosebumps prickled my skin. It was a story I'd been making up in my head, a story I hadn't told anyone yet. At that moment, a million reactions were open to me, all simultaneously adequate and inadequate. But the only thing that seemed proper was to finish the story for you. So I did. Halfway through, you interrupted me to ask if my mother had recovered from her sickness yet. I had to shake my head, a bit ashamed at the fact that I shared this private matter with a stranger. The story ended a few minutes before recess. My next class was in another room. You told me to go. Your steadiness took me back. You seemed so accepting of your fate, like you'd already gotten used to the idea of being forgotten forever. I was a kid back then. I wasn't a particularly smart kid, but I was probably on the onset of a crush. So you can excuse what I did next as an example of my childhood stupidity. I grabbed my scissors, pressed it against my arm's skin, and dug in. As it drew blood, I pushed it forwards till the cut formed the shape I wanted. Letter by letter, I carved your name into my arm. Just so you know, I don't regret that. Don't get me wrong. Kid power might have made me do it, but it sure as hell didn't make the pain go away. It was one of the most painful experiences of my life. But even then, as a kid, I thought what was happening to you was unfair. I remember how your eyes looked when you saw that, the confusion, how strange it was for you that anyone would want to remember. I remember that look so clearly. When I woke up the next day and saw your name on my arm, I remembered you. I didn't forget. That day, for the first time, We had a conversation that wasn't so one-sided. You said no one had ever done anything like that before and suggested I might have a mental illness. I won't deny it. That drew a little blood. As we talked, a creeping thought came into my head. Did you prefer it when I didn't remember? 
That night, I was sitting on my bed, staring at your name on my arm, wondering if I should cover it up so I couldn't see it and give you back your privacy, when I heard a crash. I looked up to see my bedroom window shattered and a dirty rock on my floor. I looked out the cracked window to see a dark figure on my lawn. You were outside yelling about how we should hang out. It took me a while to get used to how bad you were at talking to people. Years without practice made you quite a bit rusty. That was all right. We had a lot of time. For the next two years, we spent most of our free time together. Most of the time we talked. You'd tell me an aspect of your life and how you lived. You still stayed in your old house. Your parents never noticed the food that had gone missing, never noticed the extra room, or that you had stolen the extra keys. One night, I confided in you that I was beginning to think you were a part of my imagination, fight club style. After all, what could you do to me that I couldn't do to myself? You spent the next month or so trying to leave bite marks on my ear or neck to prove a point. I still have a few scars on my ear, so I guess you did. Looking back, I could see the warning signs even then. Your skin seemed to get worse and worse, paler and paler, and you rubbed your eyes raw. In the winter, we had our wake-up call. The morning began like any other. I woke up, brushed my teeth, started searching for clothes to wear. It was a winter morning, and my room was dark, so I didn't see your name on my arm. The cold sent shivers through my body, and I pulled out a long-sleeved jacket. A small bell rang in my head. Don't you usually roll your sleeves up? Yeah, and why did I? That was annoying. I finished tidying up and headed to school. On the bus, I felt oddly content, like something I'd been worrying about just disappeared. I walked up the school stairs, down the hall, through my classroom door, and sat down at my desk. The same feeling of a burden forgotten hounded my mind. What was I forgetting? When recess came, I just sat at my desk while my classmates ran out. It felt like a ritual, but I didn't know what for. I was contemplating just walking out to join them when I heard it. It was something small in the wind, like a whisper, but it came over and over incessant. It sounds like my name. I knew this was strange, that this was worth my attention, but I oddly felt calm. Everything would be all right. Everything would be fine. Just ignore it. I sat there at my desk, my mind a war zone between two conflicting, contradictory voices when I felt a force tugging on my sleeve. The moment I noticed this, my jacket sleeve tore open. I saw your name on my arm, and then your hand that had ripped my jacket open. You'd been yelling at me for over 20 minutes. I think that was the moment we realized how on edge our friendship really was, one accident away from complete erasure. We spent most of the next year in the town library together, trying to find out what the fireflies were. It wasn't really a problem for me. Because of my mother's treatment, my family couldn't afford to go on any trips, and our house didn't have heating anymore, so I was happy to spend my time with you. Trying to find information was a puzzle in and of itself. After all, how could I read about people I couldn't remember, and how would you find out who was special when no one could even remember enough about them to record them? We found our family trees and records. Individually, we'd write down the name of everyone in the book on two lists. Then we would compare. The names I hadn't remembered to write down, but you had, would become the focus. They were the names who were under the curse of the fireflies. We compiled a list of suspicious books, 
books we thought could help us because they were written by or were about the people we were searching for. I read the books with the list of names side by side, reading it again for every page of the book. You scoured the internet on the computer library, on the lookout for articles about the people. Our search would lead us to the first glimpse we got of what was really happening to you. It was late at night when you found the picture. I was a bit drowsy at the time and almost about to nod off when I heard a sharp intake of breath. I turned to see you standing up, pointing at the screen. I didn't see anything. Well, anything noteworthy. On the screen was a picture of a clearing somewhere in the woods. You held up your piece of paper where you'd marked out two names. Susie Appleby Reagan, 13. Terry Appleby Reagan, 12. Siblings. For a moment, I saw the paper and the screen side by side. And then I saw them. Two figures emerging from the woods towards the camera. They were almost humanoid, with the exception of their limbs, which stretched to nightmarish proportions. Their blank, white skin was that of pure albino, and looked more like tree bark than anything you expect to find on a mammal. A cloud of fireflies surrounded the duo. The shorter one looked emaciated. I could see their rib cages, around which their, their eyes, God, their eyes, so small, so red. The taller one, with its white hair, didn't look alive anymore. They were little more than skin wrapped around a skeleton. Fireflies swarmed out of the pair's empty eye sockets. Both reached for the cameraman. I looked at the article surrounding the picture. It was a blog posted by a hiker 20 years after the last mention of the two kids. The picture was a mystery to the cameraman as well. He had been wanting to go by the woods pictured for a while now, but he never actually remembered going there. The picture had just appeared on his camera one day, out of the blue. For a moment, I looked at your face. Your thin, pale face with those red-veined eyes. Would that be you when my scar faded? Just a walking horror I'd glimpse, then forget? We worked through our reading list at a much faster pace, starting from that moment. Maybe we should have gone slower. At least every book, every website we've left untouched, promised hope. The books that we finished and tossed aside promised nothing but the clearing in the woods as one's future. And we tossed aside a lot of books. I believe I tore through three-fourths of my reading list before I stumbled across the journal. Oh God, that horrible, horrible journal. The journal used to belong to a mental patient named Joey, who claimed to be a serial killer. He was locked up in an asylum when the police discovered his supposed victims never existed. He was diagnosed with a need for attention and shoved away. They should have electrocuted him. They should have fried him until his flesh melted and his hair burned. In the journal, he talked about how he carried out his killings. He knew things, bizarre and disturbing things no one else knew. He knew of strange creatures that lived in the woods. Of them, his favorites were the fireflies. I'm not going to tell you how he summoned these things. I trust you more than anyone, but a thing like this belongs in the ground more than it ever will to the human mind. In the end, it's sufficient to know that these things were not fireflies. Joey would start his ritual by taking a kid, any kid, anyone he pleased. He could take them at any time in the dead of night from their homes or in broad daylight from their front yards. It didn't matter if he was seen. He'd take them to his house and drag them inside. 
Usually, an Amber Alert came up at that point. He didn't care. Like I said, it wouldn't matter soon. He dragged them to a special room in his house. Here, the fireflies would come and latch onto them. Now, nobody was searching for the kids. Not the police, not the parents, nobody. From then on, he could do whatever he wanted to the kid. He'd get bored of them after a day or two, after the child had broken. At that point, he disposed of them. Hacksaw, kitchen knife, anything would work. He detailed a large pit of bodies in the woods, swarming with bugs. One day, I guess he got bored of that too, so he went right to the police station and turned himself in. Not on account of guilt. No, no, no. He just wanted someone to know about the stuff he was doing. Sick bastard. Oh, don't get the wrong idea. He'd never stop killing kids. The asylum doors didn't stop him from doing what he liked. It just made him improvise. He made a new way. He modified the flies so they could survive without a host, just in a dormant state. When a child, he specified the age, would approach the swarm, it would latch on and begin its effect. Over the years, the child would warp horribly into the things we saw in the woods. I wish I could hate him in peace. I wish I could say the world owed him nothing, but that wouldn't be true. He detailed a way out. On the final page, there was an exact explanation on how to get rid of the fireflies. You must have seen something in my face because at that moment you asked if I had found anything. I said no and closed the book. A few minutes later, you shut down the computer. You picked up the last book and went through it yourself. When you reached the end cover, you tossed it aside. I asked what we should do now. You said it was all right. I could go home. We'd talk about it in the morning. I stood up walked past the shelves of books. I headed for the library entrance, but stopped right outside the door and waited. I waited until I heard the sniffling sounds. I sneaked back to our table, where you were quietly sobbing. You had your head in your hands. I sat back down as you raised your eyes to me. You said you wish you'd never met me. How happy you were when you had nothing to lose. How I ruined your life. You'd never really gotten better at talking to people. And that was the worst love confession I'd ever heard. I remember how we kissed that night. I remember your hands gripping my hair. I remember that kiss. I wish it could have been just a kiss. I'm sorry I ruined that moment. When my arms were around you, I was close enough to steal a firefly without you noticing. I remember holding the firefly in my hand. I remember how it struggled until it didn't. Until it was part of me. The fireflies shifted. They came over to me and left you. I remember the familiar look in your eyes, the confusion. I never wanted to see that confusion in your eyes again. You deserve to be loved, and you deserved to know that. I wasn't really living anyway. You reached for me. I pulled away as the last lights of recognition faded from your eyes. And then you were just staring at a stranger, walking away into a crowd of strangers. That was a year ago. You've gotten much better since then. You have so many friends now. So many people at your birthday party. You look so much healthier. I haven't been as fortunate. My skin's gotten a lot paler. My eyes hurt all the time now. I couldn't go to school like you did all those years. I haven't wasted my time, though. I found Joey's pit. The bodies. There were so many bodies. There's a grave for those children now. Without me, my mom could afford her surgery. 
She looked so happy. Just yesterday, I saw her playing with my baby brother. I saw you crying yesterday. You were with your friends, laughing. For a brief moment, your eyes met mine, and then they were so wet. I think I'm going away. For good, I think. You're not going to be happy if I stick around. I'm so happy I met you, even if you don't remember me. Note end. Sometimes I go through depressive episodes. I feel so lonely, even with my friends. I don't know what's going through my head during these times. And sometimes I end up in the bathtub, a knife in my hands, and my wrist bleeding. Until now, I thought I was cutting my wrist. I wasn't. The cuts. They're letters. I've been carving my name onto my arm. This one is called A Boy in a Michael Myers Mask, written by Starless and Bible Black. Considering how much crap people give this movie, it honestly isn't that bad, Mark said while taking another sip of his beer. His wife, Claire, took another fistful of popcorn from her bowl. Just you wait. This is one of my favorite parts coming up. In the next scene, a boy wearing a pumpkin mask watched a flashing jack-o'-lantern on a television while the silly theme song played in the background. Just as the mask began to rot and the kid fell to the ground, Claire heard the doorbell ring. She grunted with disappointment and set the bowl of popcorn down on the coffee table. Right when we were getting to one of the best scenes, she said with a slight hint of disappointment in her voice. Claire stood up from their couch and walked towards the front door. While doing so, she grabbed a bowl of candy from their kitchen counter as well as her witch hat. She placed the cheap cone on her head and made sure it was lopsided. As she walked down the foyer, she could hear her husband's laughter bellowing as the sound of snakes and bugs squirming blared from the surround sound. As soon as she opened her front door... She was greeted with the delightful, high-pitched screams of small children. Trick or treat! My oh my, aren't you a scary little bunch? Claire exclaimed while extending the bowl in front of them. She allowed each kid to take two pieces. Most of them immediately went for the good stuff like Snickers and Reese's. Just as she expected, none of the children went for the Almond Joys that had come in the variety bag. She didn't really mind. They were her favorite, and it meant more for her at the end of the night. Stay safe, children, and please be careful. This is a busy street, so watch out for any cars. Yes, ma'am, the group retorted while turning and running down the cobblestone path that snaked through her yard. One child, covered in zombie makeup, turned his head as he ran and yelled, Thank you! Claire smiled and waved goodbye to the children as they ran down her driveway and onto the sidewalk. As she watched them take off towards the next house, she caught sight of her neighbor walking across the street. The two exchanged a friendly wave. The woman and her daughter glanced up and down the street before running across and up to Claire's front door. Happy Halloween, Margaret, Claire said while holding out the candy bowl for her daughter. You know, I've been looking all up and down the street for you. I'm guessing Mark went out with Tommy tonight? Margaret's daughter, Elizabeth, shuffled through the candy in the bowl and attempted to find one that would satisfy her cravings. Tommy actually went out with some friends from school. He was begging us all month to do it. I was a little skeptical, 
But Mark was the one that pointed out that we need to let him off the leash a little bit. We came to a compromise that he couldn't go past Jefferson Street. Elizabeth squealed with delight as she finally found a Twix bar among all the pieces of candy. She placed it in her bag and went back to scavenging through the bowl for another one. We also put a tracker app on his phone just to make sure he listens. He's never really been a problem with this sort of thing, but I just wanted to be safe. They both looked down as Elizabeth made it known to the world that she had found two more Twix bars. The two of us need to get going. If we see Tommy anywhere he's not supposed to be, I'll give you a call. The two women hugged and Margaret took her daughter by the hand. As they walked down the driveway and onto the sidewalk, Claire looked on with a smile. The two of them passed in front of her house and further down the street. Just as Claire was stepping back inside, she caught the sight of something in her neighbor's yard. A child stood near the edge of the grass. Claire guessed he was about 10 years old from his size. His small frame was covered in a pair of dark blue coveralls that were easily two sizes too big. His face was hidden by a Michael Myers mask that was meant to be worn by an adult, causing it to look almost comically large on the boy's head. An orange plastic bag filled with a small amount of candy hung by his side from a small fist. She assumed it was the Johnson's kid, considering he was standing in their yard. Did you want some candy, Robert? The boy stood completely silent and motionless. He simply continued to stare at her with the hollow, black eye holes on the mask. Claire had never really known Robert to be a talkative boy, so this hardly surprised her. She shrugged and shut the front door behind her. She rested the bowl of candy back on the kitchen counter and plopped down into the cushions of the couch. Just as she found the perfect, comfortable position, Mark nudged her. Hey, would you mind grabbing me another beer? She glared at him with an exhausted look. You have no self-reliance, do you? Just like many other times in the past, Mark flashed her a pitiful look. Please? Ugh, yuck. He asked in a mocking child's voice. Claire grabbed the empty bottle from his hand and stood up from the couch. God, you're insufferable, she said with a laugh. Claire walked into the kitchen and threw open the door to the refrigerator. As she grabbed one bottle, she figured that she might as well get one for herself. As she placed them on the counter and opened a drawer to retrieve the bottle opener, something caught her attention. Just outside the kitchen window, she saw a shadow fly across the grass in the soft glow of their security light. She leaned closer to the glass that had frosted around the edges from the chill of the night air. A few dead leaves tumbled across the grass as she scanned the yard for the source of the movement. Ding dong! Her attention suddenly diverted to the front door. She left the bottles on the counter and grabbed the bowl of candy once more. As she flung open the front door, she was not greeted with the familiar cheers of small children like every other time this night. Her front doorstep was empty. She glanced at her driveway to find no one in sight. 
It was not until she looked near the edge of her lawn that something caught her attention. The boy in the Michael Myers mask was standing near the hedge that bordered Claire's yard. He stood completely still in the green glow of the Halloween lights that emitted from the front landscaping. At this point, Claire knew this was not the neighbor's kid. Although Robert rarely talked, she knew that he was not one to pull pranks like this. She attempted to see any detail of his face through the holes in the mask, but to no avail. Look, I don't know who you are, but either take some candy or get out of here. She held out the bowl in his direction. The boy tilted his head to one side as the Halloween lights changed to a shade of purple. He then pivoted on his heels and walked down her lawn towards the street. He vanished around the hedge and out of her sight. Little weirdo, Claire muttered to herself while opening an Almond Joy and popping it into her mouth. As she set the candy bowl down on the kitchen counter, Mark called to her from his perch in the living room. Who were you yelling at? Just some kid who was standing in the yard. I saw him across the street in the Johnson yard a few minutes ago. Well, did you offer him any candy? Yeah, Claire responded while popping the caps off of their beer. All he did was stare at me and walk off. Good thing I'm here to protect you, honey. She rolled her eyes while walking back to the living room. My ass, Claire said, shoving the beer bottle in his hand. She tousled his hair and sat on the couch. With the popcorn bowl resting back in her lap, Claire picked up a handful and happily put it in her mouth. She turned her head to find their dog standing at the back door, wanting to be let in. Oh, come on! Giving up her seat once again, Claire dragged her feet to the back door and slid it open. The black lab pranced inside with delight and vanished into the kitchen to search for scraps. In its wake, a few leaves blew in through the door. Claire quickly rounded them up and tossed them back outside. As she looked out over the yard, she noticed the boy in the Michael Myers mask standing amongst the trees that backed up to the fence. Hey, what the hell are you doing back there? There was no response. Mark, you better get over here. Her husband grunted as he stood up from the couch and lumbered in her direction. Using the doorframe as support, he leaned over and stuck his head out. I'll tell you one thing, this isn't the Johnson's boy. Robert's a couple of inches shorter than that and a few pounds heavier. Oh, what a douche. Like, what? like, really? What a fucking douche. Claire blew air from her nostrils and pinched the bridge of her nose in frustration. At this point, I don't care who the hell he is. I just want him out of here. If that means calling the neighborhood security, then so be it. Mark stepped outside with his bare feet smacking on the flagstone patio. He stood right at the edge where it met the grass. His shadow loomed over the yard as he blocked some of the light coming from inside the house. Either you leave or we're calling security. You got that? The boy stood motionless and refused to answer. Are you deaf or something? Get out of here. This time, the boy moved. He set the orange candy bag down in the pine straw and opened it. Reaching inside, the black handle of a kitchen knife emerged from the bag. 
The blade reflected the moonlight and bounced it back in their direction. Holy shit! Mark immediately threw his beer bottle straight at the child. It hurled through the air before shattering in large chunks against his head. What? His small body slumped and fell to the ground with a soft thud. Mark, what the hell is wrong with you? Claire cried as she ran through the doorway. You saw that kid? He had a fucking knife. He might have a concussion now, thanks to you. Do you want to have assault charges brought on to us by this kid's parents? I doubt they would do anything to us when they realized he was carrying a knife around. Just look at the size of that thing. Mark turned as he pointed in the boy's direction. To his shock, the child was gone. All that remained was a dark brown glass of his beer bottle scattered among the landscaping. Where'd he go? Mark asked while stumbling backwards towards the house. Claire took a few steps back herself and fumbled for the phone in her pocket. That's it. I am calling the cops. Mark followed her back inside and locked the door behind him. As the blue and white colors emitting from the television danced around the room, Claire dialed 911 and spoke with the dispatcher. Although difficult at times, she managed to keep the panic from seeping into her tone. They'll have an officer here in about six minutes. Her phone suddenly rang, causing her to jump. Looking down at the screen, she was met by the contact photo of her son dressed up as Dr. Strange that she had taken that very afternoon. Tommy? Hey, Mom, I'm almost home. Is it okay if my friends come over for a few minutes and watch some movies? They had to go change because we slipped in some mud. At this point, her son's messy clothes were the least of her concerns. That's fine, dear. Just please hurry home. All right, see you soon, he said with delight as the call ended with a beep. Claire shoved the phone back down into her pocket and looked at her husband. Mark was staring out of the kitchen window with his nose pressed against the glass. Any sign of the kid? Nothing yet, he said while turning towards the backyard. It's like he just disappeared into thin air. There was a knock at the door that caused them both to jump. Claire breathed a sigh of relief and quickly walked towards the door. She threw it open and greeted her son with a sigh of relief as the cool night air flooded inside. I'm so glad you're home. The doorstep was empty save for a few bugs that danced around the overhead light. Claire panicked and began frantically looking from side to side. Tommy? She called into the cool night air. Stepping forward, she was met with an unsettling crunch under her foot. She slowly looked down to find a piece of plastic cracked under her shoe. As she lifted her foot, she recognized it as the magical shield that had come with Tommy's costume. A knot formed in her stomach as she began to lose her balance. Propping herself up against the doorframe, she called for her husband. Mark? He came barreling down the hallway in an instant. Is he out here again? Mark followed his wife's eyes down to the ground. When he saw the pieces of shattered plastic resting on the concrete, the color drained from his face. I'm grabbing my gun. Before Claire could stop him, her husband had fled to their room to retrieve the firearm from the top shelf of their closet. As she watched him disappear around the corner, she heard a noise coming from the driveway. It sounded like something falling on the pavement. 
she timidly approached the driveway and peered around the back of her car. She was met with nothing but the sight of an empty sidewalk. She crept closer to the street and was surprised to feel her foot slip on something. She glanced down to find a small puddle of blood near the back tire of her SUV. Her shoe had smeared some of it across the driveway in a dark crimson streak. Tommy's cell phone lay on the concrete with the screen cracked. Claire's contact was still pulled up on the phone app. Mark! She screamed at the top of her lungs. Within a matter of seconds, her husband came running through the front door with a pistol in his grasp. As he came closer to her, she pointed at the puddle illuminated under the sickly yellow glow of the streetlight. Mark wrapped an arm tightly around his wife, pulled her away from it. He was met with resistance as she broke from his grasp and ran towards the street. As Claire glanced further down the sidewalk, she could see a trail of blood illuminated under the streetlights that dotted their way down the road. She felt her head spin, her knees begin to weaken. She soon fell to the ground and began to sob. Mark rushed to her side and bent down to cradle her. Tommy! She continued to scream her son's name into the cool night air, only to have it echo back as if the world was taunting her. As her cries carried up and down the street, hot tears ran down her cheeks. Mark held her tighter as the two were bathed in the red and blue glow of an approaching police car. The vehicle pulled up to the curb, and the deputy threw open his door as he caught sight of them. As he approached, Claire's voice continued to pierce the night, only to be lost in the howling wind. This one is titled Ichbar Biggelstein, and it's by Stephen D. Harris. When I was a small child, I was terrified of the dark. I still am. But back when I was around six years old, I couldn't go a full night without crying out for one of my parents to search beneath my bed or in my closet for whatever monster I thought was waiting to eat me. Even with a nightlight, I would still see dark shapes moving around the corners of the room or strange faces looking in on me from my bedroom window. My parents would do their best to console me, telling me that it was just a bad dream or a trick of the light. But in my young mind, I was positive that the second I fell asleep, the bad things would get me. Most of the time, I would just hide under the blankets until I became tired enough to stop worrying. But every now and then, I would become so panicked that I would run screaming into my parents' room, waking up my brother and sister in the process. After an ordeal like that, there would be no way any of us would be getting a full night's rest. Eventually, after one particularly traumatizing night, my parents had had enough. Unfortunately for them, they understood the futility in arguing with a six-year-old and knew that they would be unable to convince me to rid myself of childish fears through reason and logic. They had to be clever. It was my mother's idea to stitch together my little bedtime friend. She collected a large assortment of random fabric and her sewing machine and created what I would later refer to as Mr. Ickbar Biggelstein, or Ick for short. Ick was a sock monster, as my mother called him. He was made to keep me safe while I slept at night by scaring away all the other monsters. He was pretty damn creepy, I had to admit. Honestly, looking back on it all now, 
I'm still impressed that my mom could think of something so strange and disturbing looking. Igbar had the stitched together look of a Frankenstein gremlin with big white button eyes and floppy cat ears. His little arms and legs were made from a pair of my sister's black and white striped socks. And the half of his face that was green was made from one of my brother's tall football socks. His head could have been described as bulbous. And for his mouth, my mom attached a piece of white fabric and sewed it in a zigzag pattern to shape a wide grin of sharp teeth. I loved him at once. From then on, Ick never left my side. So long as it was after dusk, of course. Ick didn't like the sun and would get upset if I tried to bring him to school with me. But that was okay. I only needed him at night anyway to keep away the boogeyman, which was what he was good at. So every night at bedtime, Ick would tell me where the monsters were hiding, and I would place him near the section of my room closest to the spookiness. If there was something in the closet, Ick would block the door. If there was a dark creature scratching at my window, Ick would be pressed up against the glass. If there was a big, hairy beast under my bed, then under the bed he went. Sometimes, the monsters weren't even in my room. Sometimes they would hide in my dreams, and Ickbar would have to come with me into my nightmares. It was fun bringing Ick into my dream world, as he and I would spend hours fighting off ghouls and demons. The best part was, in my dreams, Ick could talk to me for real. How much do you love me? He would ask. More than anything, I would always tell him. One night, in a dream, after I had lost my first tooth, Ick asked me for a favor. Can I have your tooth? I asked him why. To help me kill the bad things, he said. The next morning at breakfast, my mom asked me where my tooth went. From what she told me, the tooth fairy didn't find it under my pillow. When I told her that I gave it to Ickbar, she just shrugged and went back to feeding my little sister. From then on, every time I lost a tooth, I would give it to Ick. He always thanked me, of course, and told me that he loved me. Eventually, though, I ran out of baby teeth, and I was beginning to get a little too old to still be playing with dolls. So Ick just sat there on my bookshelf, collecting dust, slowly fading away from my attention. Over time, the nightmares, however, became worse than ever. So bad that they began to follow me to the waking world, terrorizing every dark corner or rustle in the bushes. After one particularly bad night biking home from a friend's house where I swore a pack of rabid dogs were chasing me, I got home to find something strange waiting for me in my room. There on my bed, standing fully upright in the soft glow of the moonlight from my window, was Igbar. At first, I thought my eyes were just playing tricks on me again. They had been all evening, so I tried to flick on the lights. Another flick of the light switch, then another, and another. No changes in the darkness. It was then that I started to get nervous. I backed away slowly towards the door behind me, my eyes never leaving the shape of Ick's silhouette, my hand awkwardly outstretched behind reaching for the doorknob. I was just about to get my ass out of there when I heard the door slam itself shut, locking me into blackness. In nothing but shadows and silence, I stood frozen in place, not even breathing. For how long, I can't say. But after what felt like a lifetime of cold fear, I heard the shrill, familiar voice. You stopped feeding me, so why should I protect you? Protect me from what? 
let me show you. I blinked once and everything changed. I wasn't in my bedroom anymore. I was somewhere else. It wasn't hell, but the comparison wasn't far off. It was some sort of forest, a horrible, nightmarish place. The ground swarmed with carnivorous insects. A thick fog wafted through the air, and with it, the stench of rotting meat, while chartreuse lighting flashed across the night sky. In the distance, I could hear the agonizing screams of something not quite human. My head throbbed like it was about to explode, the pain forcing out a river of tears. In my mind, I heard his voice again. This is what your reality would become without me. I felt earth-shaking footsteps approaching fast. I'm the only one who can stop it. It was right behind me now, huge and angry, hot breath across my back. Bring me what I need, and I will. I woke up before I could turn around. The following day, I raided my parents' closet for my brother's teeth, giving them all to Iqbar. Almost immediately, the night terror ceased. I was more or less able to go on about my life as normal. From time to time, I would have to sneak into my little sister's room and snatch what was meant to be for the tooth fairy, or strangle one of the neighbor's cats and pry out its sharp little incisors. Anything to ward off the visions. Anything from a shark tooth necklace to a cavity-written bicuspid. I also began to notice that it would move around my room whenever I left for any length of time, rearranging my stuff and hanging additional curtains. He was even beginning to look more lifelike somehow. In the right light, his teeth would glisten, and he was warm to the touch. As much as he creeped me out, I couldn't work up the courage to just destroy him, knowing perfectly well where that would leave me. So I went on collecting teeth for Ick throughout all of high school and college. The older I got, the more things I would learn to fear, the more teeth Ick would need to keep me safe. I'm 22 years old now with a decent job, my own apartment, and a set of dentures. It's been almost a month since Ick's last meal, and the horrors are starting to crowd around me once more. I took a detour through a parking garage after work tonight. I found a man fumbling with his car keys. His teeth were stained yellow from a lifetime of cigarettes and coffee. Even still, I had to use a hammer to get out the molars. When I got back from the apartment, he was waiting for me, on the ceiling, in the corner. Two white eyes and a mouth of razors. How much do you love me? he asked. More than anything, I replied, taking off my coat. More than anything in the world. Well, those were very creepy. Right? All open-ended. I don't like the way any of them fucking ended. No. I need closure. Yes. Everyone is great. No one died. <laughs> no one lost teeth. That's how they're ending. Mm-hmm. Tommy, Tommy came home, had a bag full of candy. He had, he even brought his mom some Almond Joys. <laughs> Nobody has any more stalkers. Right. No more fucking dolls. No more dolls. Whew. Well, we are kicking Halloween, 31 fucking nights of it, off great. Because mm-hmm. those were fucking scary. Fucking creepy. But, like, for real. I know. I didn't like any of them. There, Will had to edit out so many reactions. I know. I know. <laughs> Mainly of me at that fucking stupid husband. Oh, my gosh. We were. He was annoying. Very annoying. This is why we're single, y'all. <laughs> 
I mean, reason 247. Million. <laughs> True. On that note, remember. Creep it real. And, and don't, don't get scared. scared.